Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund, with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Good afternoon, and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. I'm John Mitterholzer, Senior Program Officer for the Environment at the George Gunn Foundation, and today we're at the Huntington Convention Center of Cleveland for the 2019 State of the Great Lakes Forum. Everyone is talking about the Cuyahoga River this week, and for good reason. 50 years ago tomorrow, it burned. Sadly, it wasn't the first time. The river was fouled with oil slicks and debris, and there were no signs of life present. The fire and the national attention that followed became catalysts for the modern environmental movement. It led to the creation of the Environmental Protection Agency and the passage of the Clean Water Act. Today, 50 years later, as a result of concerted federal and local efforts to clean up our waters, air, and land, the Cuyahoga River is healthy and vibrant. However, our country and the world face unprecedented environmental challenges brought on by the steady, continuous warming of the planet. Many of these challenges, while very real, are less visible than, than the dramatic image of water catching fire. Environmental threats coupled with rising socioeconomic inequality, if not reversed, will profoundly affect Americans for generations to come. Despite widespread alarm and action being taken at many levels, the science tells us that we must do much more and quickly. How can 50 years of progress on the Cuyahoga River inform decisions we make today regarding climate change and other environmental threats? Will the actions we take today be enough to forestall the direct impacts of climate change? We've assembled a distinguished panel of regional and national voices to share their thoughts and perspectives. Guiding today's conversation is City Club CEO Dan Malthrop. Mr. Malthrop was appointed CEO of the City Club in 2013 after many years as a member, volunteer, and frequent moderator. A Cleveland transplant, he is also an award-winning journalist, a former high school teacher, and a graduate of UC Berkeley's Graduate School of Journalism. Esteemed guests, members, and friends of the City Club of Cleveland, please join me in welcoming our 2019 State of the Great Lakes panelists. I can clap for you. Thank you so much, John. Thank you so much. Um, and let me tell you who we've got on the panel, though I think all of you know already. Next to me is Governor Christine Todd Whitman, uh, former governor of the state of New Jersey. Uh, and next to her is Chanel Smith, who's the state director, the Ohio State Director for the Trust for Public Land. And then David Orr, Professor Emeritus at Oberlin, a leading voice in sustainability around the country. It is great to have all of you here to celebrate our great, great lake. Good to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you. I, governor Whitman, I want to start with you, um, because in addition to, of course, being governor of New Jersey, you were EPA administrator from 2001 to 2003 in the Bush administration. Um, as 
an EPA administrator, as a former EPA administrator, but thinking about your time there, um, what does what did Cleveland represent to you? It's always seemed to me that Cleveland is Cleveland and the Cuyahoga and the lake are somewhat symbolic in the nation's mythology. Oh, definitely. I mean, it was a seminal moment. You have to remember, in '69, in January, you'd had a huge oil spill at Santa Barbara, which was the largest that we'd had. It's still the third largest. Uh, and then that was followed in June by the Cuyahoga, and those two things just riveted the public's attention and drew them to the fact that we were trashing our land, poisoning our waters, uh, making our air unhealthy to breathe. And within a year, within six months actually of the Cuyahoga catching fire that last time, it, you had the, the NEPA was passed and signed by President Nixon, the National Environmental Protection Act. We started within the next year, 1970, you had the first Earth Day in April, which was millions of people, nonpartisan, nobody, nothing partisan about that. That was people holding hands across this country saying, we have got to protect our water. We have got to protect our air and our land. And then you had, by the end of that year, you had EPA had been established. You had the Clean Water Act, Safe Drinking Water Act, the Clean Air Act, the Toxics Act. I mean, it, and, and so much of it was because of the visual of the fire here that Cleveland became a focal point and it became that sort of banner around which people rallied to understand the need to clean up. And since they were starting to do it here, again, it was something you looked to constantly to say, how are they doing? What's happened? And that was the last one. And when you look at where we were 50 years ago and even where you were in 2001, 2003 and where we are today, do you, how do you see it? I mean, do you feel uh, a strong sense of progress, a moderate sense of progress? I mean, how do you see it? We've made a lot of progress. Uh, unfortunately, we're starting to backslide. Uh, just the other day, we, there was a study out to show that our air quality is, is retreating, and what goes up in the air comes down in our lakes and our streams and our, and our water. So I worry a lot about that and the, envir the environmental regula regulatory rollbacks that are going on. It's, it's one thing to take another look at regulations to see whether they've outlived their usefulness, whether there's new technology, whether the issue isn't quite what we thought, or we know more through science about it, to change them, but to just do away with them because you don't like regulations and so you just do away. Good, bad, or indifferent makes no sense and isn't endangering our water supplies and our air and our land as well. Chanel Smith, the Trust for Public Land, where you've been for the last two years, does some really important work in keeping, uh, keep in protecting the watershed, really, and, and providing for conservation easements around uh, sensitive areas. Do you see w w the progress that we made over the last 50 years and where we are right now? Are you feeling uh, positive about the future of our watershed, or are you a little concerned? I'm always positive, so those <laughs> in the room who know me know that. Um, I think, you know, a lot of people in the room probably don't know who the Trust for Public Land is, and so we are a national organization that creates parks and protects land, land for people, ensuring healthy, livable communities to come. And over the last year since the Cuyahoga River caught fire, we protected almost 15,000 acres of land along the Lake Erie and the Cuyahoga River, making sure that we're protecting that watershed and that those 11 million people who depend on Lake Erie have access to safe drinking water. I think we've made a lot of progress in our state. I think we have a lot of ways to go. Um, as 
the governor mentioned, there's been some regressive policies taking place at the national level, but the same thing is happening at the state level. But I will happy to say that under the leadership, even starting with Mayor Carl Stokes and Congressman Stokes, and even continuing to our mayor today, Mayor Jackson, there's been a lot of progress made, especially if you look at our climate action plan um, and the role that it's really focused on people and neighborhoods and having their input and how we can um, really mitigate climate, also be prepared for the next 10 to 12 years and what's to come. When you um, think back to 1969, yeah, okay. um, well, or, you know, I mean, you and I weren't there, <laughs> but born. yeah, yeah. He wasn't born yet. You and I weren't there. There's a photo, there's a, the, the, uh, the article from Time Magazine has been pinned to my wall uh, since I started at the City Club because that was such a, an important moment. There's a photo of Carl Stokes on the banks of the Cuyahoga um, talking to reporters and others. And he really framed it at that moment as, uh, as about social justice. Mm -hmm. This wasn't just about, like, the it'd be nice to clean up the environment. Mm -hmm. This was fundamentally about social justice. Certainly, and I, I agree with Mayor Stokes that it's still the same today. I think the environmental movement has a lot of work to do to make sure that equity is the, at the core of our work and that we're centering those who will be most affected by climate change. And I think a lot of that works, work invol involves including people in the decision-making process. Um, going forward in 2020 for the election, and even if you look at our local elections for 2021, there should be no candidate that is not making environmental issues a number one issue, but also the social justice issue. David Orr, that was the first applause line. Um, <laughs> and, uh, but I, want, I know that that is um, the idea or the, the hope that every candidate will have a comprehensive, uh, a comprehensive plan when it comes to climate change, the environment, sustainability. I know that you share that hope and that's something you've been pushing for for decades. Um, can you situate this conversation that we're having right now about the Great Lakes in the context of the broader conversation around climate change and the political conversation we're having as a nation in two minutes? I was going to ask for more, uh, just two, <laughs> two minutes. Well, I think the, the issue is, uh, Governor Whitman uh, referenced this. When we passed, we as a nation passed the uh, Clean Water Act, and before that, the Clean Air Act, and most of the legislation that's still on the books as the heart of American environmental law. We came together as Democrats and Republicans. And if you're old enough, you remember those, those times. Uh, the EPA was created by Richard Nixon. Uh, there were people like Nat Reed and the Department of Interior. There were strong Republicans and strong Democrats that came together. There was a convergence. And it wasn't a partisan issue. It was a convergence issue. It was work that had to be done. And somewhere along the line, we've, we've lost that and the, the focus. That's why it's been so hard for us to get a decent climate policy. Uh, pedal to the metal is still the American energy policy. And so uh, the shadow of our generation falls very heavily on future generations. So I, I think to, uh, to answer the question, I think this is now back on the political agenda. Most all of the Democratic candidates uh, have some kind of uh, climate policy. Jay Inslee's is probably the most uh, detailed, but all of them have, are beginning to talk about this. And if we can't talk about this in the public arena in election, where can we talk about it? When will we talk about it? And then the other, other thing, the, the sense of urgency here is really science-driven. Uh, the IPCC, which is the International Governmental Body of Scientists that uh, is authoritative on these issues, 
and always understated. They're, they're, not, they're not over the top on any of this. But last fall, they gave us 12 years, give or take, to deflect carbon emissions downward, 12 years. And that will go, at my age, I know that time passes very quickly. There is still no policy here. To the contrary, we're pulled out of the Paris Accords. We're going backwards on that. Uh, in May 6th, uh, a UN body issued a report on biodiversity. And in the course of the 21st, our, our century, now up to uh, the year 2100, one million species, they say, are in jeopardy of being lost. One million. Now, the problem we have is that those numbers kind of go in one ear and out the other. There's just a lot of scientific data. But what it says politically is where we conduct the public business, we have to come together. And so I want to applaud Governor Whitman. Uh, she's been a leader uh, in the Republican Party on these issues, uh, had great uh, courage to come out and be spokes spokesperson on these kind of issues. But now's the time to converge on this. This is the challenge of our time. And Lake Erie is one important piece of that, but it's only a piece. But where climate policy, where climate goes, Lake Erie is. Governor Whitman, the, um, you have stood out in front as, a, as sometimes a, a, a lone voice in the Republican Party, but sometimes with colleagues um, against the current administration, um, uh, EPA Administrator Scott Pruitt and, and now Administrator Wheeler as well, that you've called on to, quote, just do your job. I think that was Gina McCarthy said, just do your job. That was Gina, but I was right behind her. But you were right behind her. Just do your job. <laughs> yeah. Um, as, as Dr. Orr suggested, 12 years, that's not a lot of time. Um, no, it's not. And it's happening all around us. I mean, the irony here to me is that the American public sees it. We're not dumb. We see it happening. And just because you don't talk about it doesn't mean it's going to go away. Uh, it's, we're not all ostriches. You stick your head in the sand and the, something's going to still bite you on the butt. And this is going to get us. And it is getting us now. And hearing about the, the water rise in the lake and what it is doing on shore when the winds are blowing and how much further it's coming in. That's part of it all. If you look at the, the fact that we had a Secretary of State who went up to the Arctic Regions Conference of all the countries of the Arctic region, the Arctic warming at twice the rate of the rest of the world, and refused to sign the final document unless they took out any mention of climate change is just mind-boggling to me. Um, we're already moving native Alaskan tribes, their villages. We have to move them physically. You have to find a place to put them. And, you know, you, you don't just pick up a whole village and pop it somewhere. What do you do first? Do you do the hospital? Do you do the grocery store? I mean, this is happening now. What is actually going on inside the Republican Party when you're having candid conversations about, about climate change? Um, because it doesn't, it doesn't seem to be something that, um, that you can deny anymore, right? The, the, the Secretary of State said, this is great for trade. We've got these new trade routes, right. no more ice. Yay. But, um, and Russian submarines coming under, but, and we don't have any presence up there to deal with that because they're looking at the so, extraction. So, but under. there's this sort of like tacit acknowledgement that climate change is real and we're experiencing the effects of it. Mm -hmm. And maybe it's just the words climate change that are the problem. But, um, but I, I know that you're not the only Republican who, know, who knows this and who, speaks, and who's speaking out <coughs> about it. So 
the, what's going on? Why? What's the logic? It, what's the end game? Well, it's the same as everything, unfortunately, that's happening in Washington and, and seeping down more and more into our state and local politics, which is you look at everything through the partisan political prism and not through the policy prism. And the short-term win. And the short-term win, what's going to get me another vote in my re-election? What's going to get me another vote on my caucus? Not how do we solve the problem? And that's happening on both sides. They're both looking for these issues. and. You know, the environment is so easy to take out of context because when you're talking about scientists, as, as Professor Rohr was saying, it goes in one ear and out the other. I mean, most people, well, what can I do about it? Climate change, that's way beyond me. I, I gotta worry about paying my rent. I've gotta worry about whether I can get my kids to the doctor and healthcare and those kinds of things are the imminent things that relate to me, not all this stuff out here. And without leadership from the top, you're not gonna get the focus. They may see it, they see it, it's going on, but what are you gonna do about the next tornado? Or the next, what am I gonna do as an individual? It's trying to educate people about holding their uh, elected leadership responsible and, and saying they're the ones that can start to establish the policies that can help us slow down an inevitable process. I mean, we're not gonna stop climate change. The earth has been changing since it was formed, but we clearly can slow it this process and prepare for it, which is not what we're or not stop doing now. speeding it up. Yes, at least let's stop speeding it up. Yeah. Chanel Smith, uh, I feel like when we're talking about this, it feels like we've forgotten how to tell the collective story, mm -hmm. right? The story of all of us. Yep. Yeah, so I think I'm, I'm just sitting here thinking about how I became involved in this movement, and it was um, during my, my time in college at Kent State when Hurricane Katrina happened. Um, and we all saw it on the news. We saw people struggling um, and people being displaced. And I decided to organize about 500 people at Kent State to travel down to Biloxi, Mississippi to spend our whole week there to help people rebuild their neighborhoods and their communities. Had no clue what I was doing. Um, but the thing is about that is that communities are dealing with environmental issues and we need to elevate them to be the level of importance of everything else that's happening in our community. If you think about lead issues, that's an environmental issues. You think about health issues, toxic stress, that's related to the environment. Infant mortality, um, issues around education and kids not being able to pay attention in class. Um, and even you think about childhood, childhood obesity. Kids aren't being, don't have the ability to go out and play and have fun with their, with their friends or even just exercise. And so what I would like to see is for us to make sure that environmental issues are top priority issues. Um, and at the same time, understand that um, we need to democratize power and give pe people the power to make decisions about things that are happening in their own neighborhoods and their own communities. And that comes to creating parks or even, um, there's a great example with the sewer district with what they're doing with Project Clean Lake, where they're involving neighborhoods and communities to think about what is the leave behind when the sewer district is done doing its important work when it comes to Project Clean Lake. David. <laughs> Chanel gets all the applause. All the applause I know. <laughs> Do you want to just you sit here? <laughs> I tried that with Bill Nye. But I know it didn't that was really good. That out. was good. <laughs> um, you know, do you, do you, I wonder, I'd like to hear from all three of you, but start with you, David, on this fundamental question like, are our politics resilient enough to handle this crisis? Well, I th think that's what's being decided now. I mean, we, we don't know that. If you're, if you're a betting person, you probably wouldn't say yes to that. But I think, and Dan's part of an effort uh, that we've launched to start a larger conversation about American democracy. Because I think where democracy goes is where climate issues are gonna go. We've gotta repair 
the democratic institutions and what uh, de Tocqueville called the habits of heart, how we think about things and how we actually act on a daily level. So I think that that's being decided now. And I think that what we're calling for is a, uh, I'm gonna put a plug in here briefly, advertising. Yeah. We've got a book coming out with 30 some authors, Bill McKibben and lots of other people, including Dan Malthrop, um, comes out early 2020, followed by events in 14 cities across the country. Our idea is to get people uh, to begin to focus on the longer term repair issues. So it's not about Donald Trump, uh, not about the election per se, it's about the, the cumulative damage we've done uh, to democracy. How do we begin to get a government of the people, by the people, and for the people that actually works with foresight, transparency, and fairness? And so that, that's part of the conversation we're having. And I think one of the things I will say uh, in this election, the last thing I'd say is this, I think that what's taking place, at least on the Democratic side, is something like a clinic. There are 22 or some such number of candidates going around the country, all with something to say. And whoever you like in that, there, there's an awfully important and vital conversation, but it's about the, the question you're asking. Are we up to it? And on, on our answer, we'll give the answer in 2020 and, and thereafter, but it's not gonna be a quick answer. This is long repair work. So uh, the connection I'd like to make is that the state and the health of American democracy and the state of our planet and the health of uh, the earth, they're, they're linked. And it's gotta be done in a way that's transparent, fair, and with some foresight. So I think that's yeah. the question that we're asking. Chanel, do you think it's, obviously our politics have become more divisive in recent years, but from a different point of view, they've also become more inclusive. And so I, I, that's how I see it, but I wonder if you see that as well. Some days I feel that way and some days I don't. Um, I think if you look at what's happening at the State House with this potential, um, the State House turning them, their backs on consumers when it comes to energy policy, I would say no. But then I look at what's happening across the country in different cities, including Cleveland, I would say that local leaders really have their hands on the pulse and they really understand what's happening in their communities. And I think it's time that the state house and even the federal government take a look at what's happening in communities and take note and really elevate what's happening there to the federal level. Um, as far as inclusivity, um, we have a long ways to go. Um, we need to make sure that when we're having these conversations, like I said before, that it's community centered and that we're uplifting those who have been traditionally marginalized by environmental issues or climate issues. And like Mr. Conway said earlier about, you know, this false choice between the economy and the environment. It's not a choice. Um, there's been so many companies over the last decade that, sh that have shown that they've chosen both and they've been prosperous doing so. Mm -hmm. Christine. <laughs> It's a, you're a trigger for these. Pastor, pastor. <laughs> I mean, to that point, between 1970 and 2017, we saw our economy grow by 140, the GDP over 140%. We saw our population grow of 24%. We saw our electricity demand, power demands grow by 44%. And at the same time, we reduced our six criteria pollutants by over 67%. So we had more people demanding more energy, growing our economy at an extraordinary rate, and we were still reducing our environmental impact. We can do this. Mm -hmm. We just need to have the leadership that says, this is important, we can do this. And, and if I could just, I think this is gonna be a seminal election, I agree. Mm -hmm. This is the time when Americans in 2020 decide who are we? What kind of a country are we? 
Where do we want to be? This is as important an election, more important almost than any election in my lifetime, as far as we as a nation determining which direction we're going to go in, because we've got such a divide right now that it is, it's really scary. David, go ahead. The, uh, w one of the very positive things, if you study poll data on, on most of the big issues, there is a majority on the progressive side or whatever you want to call it. But we're less divided by poll data than we're told we are. But I think that there are some people that make a very good living by dividing us. I think hatred sells. If you're looking for a business plan, you're, you're appealing to uh, fear and hatred of the other and so forth. That's an easy sell. But if you're talking about clean air, climate change, justice, fairness, that takes some thought. That's a bit harder sell. And the good news for me is that on poll data, consistently Americans generally poll across both parties on clean air, clean water, environmental sustainability, uh, a robust climate policy. I mean, we're there. And the problem we have is that if you see this as kind of like a Grand Canyon, the chasm between what we want as people and what we get as regulations, laws, and so forth is broken. We've got to rebuild that bridge. Right now it's a toll bridge. If you don't have money, you can't get across it. So, but I think that we're there. It, it's let's, the let's lay out the agenda then. If you um, assume that, uh, that the policy directors, the environmental policy directors of the 27,000 uh, campaigns for president that are currently happening um, are going to tune into this and find it on YouTube, what do you think that their, um, that their candidates uh, should put front and center in their, in their climate policy when there's a, assuming there's going to be a debate, we will see a debate on climate. Go ahead. I think ahead. we absolutely will see a debate on climate. With the um, New Green Deal, that's forced the issue, <clears throat> put it to the front. This is the first time, again, in my memory where environment will be an issue in the presidential campaign, and that is good. That is all to the good, that we are finally going to be discussing this at that level. And that's where, again, we can come in as the American people. The problem in what's helped to create that divide is we have not taken our civic responsibilities seriously enough and we haven't been voting in primaries. We've allowed this, this split to get worse and worse. The average voter turnout in primaries has been about 10%. Well, that's, those are the most rabid partisans who are voting, choosing the most rabid candidates in many instances. And then you get to the general election and people say, I don't like either of those, a pox on both their houses. And even with the presidential election, if we get over 54%, we've done a really great job, and we haven't. So what about the practical <laughs> things that you think should be in the environmental policy of candidates running for president? Well, I think we ought to talk, for, I happen to be someone who believes in a carbon tax. Um, I think we have to address carbon where it's being produced. And there are a number of creative plans that would, in fact, uh, return money to the public in general, to everybody. I've, I've been working, not working with, but part of the Baker-Schultz uh, proposal. It's not the be-all, end-all, but it's, one of, I think, one of the really good starts that we have to get at carbon where it is being produced. We have to take this seriously. We have to address water. I think water, frankly, I've said it for a while, is the number one issue, quantity and quality, in the world of this tw 21st century. And if you look at what's happening in <clears throat> the rest of the world, in Sub-Sahara Africa, for instance, where you have these terrible droughts and nomadic people being forced off the land, moving into cities that don't have any place or jobs for them, that's where Al-Qaeda goes, that's where all others, ISIS goes to recruit, and it becomes a national security issue for us. So 
if we can get be if we can just get an in-depth, really intelligent discussion on what we need to do about climate and water, I think we're going to be in a good place. Chanel Smith, add to that. So I definitely think we should fully fund the Land and Water Conservation Fund, uh, which is a fund used to support the type of work that the Trust for Public Land does to protect land and our waterways. But I'm also sitting here thinking about one thing that you said, Governor, and that is vote. Um, one of the things that I think that we should all take away from this room as we do work in Cleveland and throughout the re region is when we're having events like this or when we're having community events, are you registering people to vote? Are you getting them to the polls? Because I think one of the things that we forget is that, you know, yes, Cuyahoga County carries the day when it comes to Ohio, but are we really registering people to vote and getting their, vo their voices to the polls? Um, I think that's extremely important. But I also would look at the, look at the state. I think one of the things that the state did um, was really to cut our local government fund funds. And that's something that needs to be, re be restored so that our communities can drive policies that are around multimodal transportation, um, that we can increase our bike plan um, in Cleveland, and then also create greater access to the outdoors and continue to support uh, parks and land conservation. Municipalities are getting a piece of that back in the, in the new, a piece, a but piece. yeah, I'm, I'm just. But can we fully restore what we lost? We would take it all back. <laughs> David Orr. Well, back, back in your original question, if, if I was advising a candidate, you, you get down the list of what it means to make the transition to the Green New Deal or to a clean energy economy. Well, for one thing, it's better health. Fewer kids with asthma, less pollution, and so forth. It's more local jobs. I mean, why isn't Cleveland and Ohio making windmills and so forth and investing in that? That's jobs and it's employment. 11 million people are involved in somewhere or another involved in renewable energy in this country, and that number could easily triple. It is, uh, as the governor said, it's balance of payments that don't involve buying oil from other places. It's this long-term transition. And you start down that list of benefits for making the transition, and you have a hard time thinking of any downside to it. it not, it's not cost. This is cost-effective. Uh, so what's the reason not to? And I think one of the things that's happened in the debate in, in my time in, in, in and around politics has been that we, we tend to isolate issues. So we talk about energy, we talk about nuclear energy, then there's conservation, and then there's wind and solar. We need to put them all on the playing field and assess them all by the same criteria. And the rule of thumb here is very simple, that you're going to pay for sustainability or climate stability whether you get it or not. You're going to pay. And you're going to pay in lost lives, you're going to pay in crime, you're going to pay... But, but you, you will pay. So the, the columns say we can't afford it. You can't afford not to. Mm -hmm. And I think if you extend the horizon out, just one other thing, you extend the horizon out to, let's say, a 10% return on investment. Well, 10% return on investment uh, or 10-year return on investment is still 7%. And so th this is good economics. It's good policy. It's good ethics. It's good for our future. It's good all the way around. So that has to be now capsulized by some candidate that takes that and runs with it. And I think that's an easy run. That's Dr. David Orr. He's, the, uh, he's Professor Emeritus of Environmental Studies and Politics at Oberlin College. I'm Dan Multhrop, Chief Executive at the City Club. And today we have a very special State of the Great Lakes at the Huntington Convention Center of Cleveland. Um, this is our 2019 State of the Great Lakes, and it is also um, obviously not just a conversation about the State of the Great Lakes. We're trying to put, as David suggested, everything on the table. With us also on the panel, Chanel Smith. She's State Director for the Trust for Public Land and Governor Christine Todd Whitman, former governor of the state of New Jersey, former administrator of the Environmental Protection Agency, and uh, we're delighted to have all of them here with us. We're about to begin the Q&A with all of you. We welcome questions from everyone, students, guests, 
all of you joining us via our live stream or our live radio broadcast. You can tweet a question if you're listening live or watching live from some remote location. You can tweet that question at the City Club and we will work it into the program. If you have a question here in the room and you'd like to ask that question, please form a line behind either of our uh, microphones. We have staff members that are standing right there. And we want to remind you that your questions should be brief to the point, preferably ending in a question mark, that kind of thing. We have our first question. Merle Johnson, welcome. Thank you. Uh, I'm Merle Johnson, member of the Ohio Board of Education. And, you know, I'm pretty predictable. I always have an education question. <laughs> so, you know, our young people coming up, I mean, this is our next generation. These are the ones who are really going to have to make, uh, deal with sustainability and make sure that we are doing what we need to do about the climate. So is there anything going on to make sure that our curriculum in our schools, uh, that students are learning about it? You know, I'm on the state board and we really don't talk about this a lot and I'm gonna have to make sure we do, but um, are any of you going into schools or, or is anyone talking to our students so that they understand the importance of this topic? Merle Johnson, thank you very much for that question. Thank you for your service. Chanel, what do you know? Yeah, so we're, the Trust for Public Land, uh, we're not working with schools, but we are working with the community, uh, Lakeview Terrace, right here on the west side. Um, and we've been working with them on environmental education issues. And so for their spring break, they spent their entire week work, we're learning about education, um, going uh, to the Nature Center in Shaker Lakes. Um, we did a tree planting with them in early May. And so we're trying to really use creative placemaking as a way to educate them. But I also know there are other organizations that are working with the Boys and Girls Clubs and other organizations to get people outdoors this summer. Um, so there are creative ways and things that are happening, but I think it is a great opportunity for us to make a stronger effort to work with the school district here. David. Thanks for that question. That, that's a, a great question. And I think one of the issues that uh, needs to be on the agenda is civic education. In almost every state, civic education has either been gutted, zeroed out, or it's been, uh, it's been cut way back. And so it's hard to think of how a democracy works with people who don't know anything about it. And so that's, that's part of it. And Chanel's point, I think, is really good. And I see these flip sides of the same coin. We're actually citizens of two communities. We're citizens of a political community, but also of an ecology. And we, we vote in different ways on each of those. But we have to show that those are, in fact, related kinds of citizenship and build responsibility into both. But thanks for that. That's an excellent question. Thank you for that. Thank you. Next question. Thank you. Um, is this one? Yes, I it can't is. Tell. Oh, thank you. I'm Jenna DeDorsey. And you know, whereas 50 years ago that um, industrial waste was the primary culprit, I believe, for what happened on the Cuyahoga River. And today our waterways, uh, one of the main factors in the state of our waterways is post-consumer post waste, most likely plastics. And so with the news that China is no longer accepting a majority of United States post-consumer plastics. We're hopping around from country to country to get somebody to accept our post-consumer plastics. Uh, Cleveland or Cuyahoga County may be instituting a plastic bag ban. Um, and the state why, may be banning the bag ban. Yes, right. <laughs> the question is, why don't we have a business case for processing recycled plastics here in the United States? We shouldn't have to go to China, Indonesia, Ghana, Senegal. There should be a business case. So the only elected official here, I guess, is the governor. And I'd just like to know, what was the business public relationship with the recyclers in the state of New Jersey? That would give me some kind of explanation as to why we can't process recycled plastics here. 
Well, one of the problems we ran into with recycling is we were so successful that what was a money maker for municipalities all of a sudden cost them money. And so they started to pull back from it. What's exciting now is the number of outside initiatives that are taking place to recycle plastic. Uh, you see a number of municipalities, particularly, well, it's happening everywhere, but New Jersey has a number of them that are actually banning plastic, single-use plastic bags, or charging you 10 cents, 50 cents to use a single-use plastic bag. But there's also a company, which happens to be in New Jersey, called TerraCycle, which recycles everything that nobody else does, but they've started a program called Loop. And what they've done is contracted or reached out to a number of major producers, Haagen-Dazs, Colgate-Palmolive, SC Johnson with Mrs. Myers, and those companies are redesigning their containers, sometimes using plastic, sometimes moving to glass, but the plastic that they're using is a thicker, different plastic that could, they intend to have reused 100 times is the goal. And you order things through Loop, it comes in a container, and you just use the products. When you're finished, you put them back in, tend to send them to UPS, UPS takes them, and sends them to the original factories that will clean and sterilize them. Then there's another uh, on, online site called Grove, and everything that they, every product that they have is in, if it's in if plastic, it's in a one or two. Again, it's all very recyclable plastic, and they're starting to make things from them. Um, I don't have them on today, but I do have several pairs of shoes that are made out of plastic. Um, there are all kinds of things now that we're finally getting creative about. It's going to be the private sector that is really pushing the public sector, because for the municipalities, it's gotten too expensive, and they're, and they're losing money. So they're, they, that's why they've moved away from it. Thank you. Next question. <clears throat> Uh, I'm with Friends of Euclid Creek. We are just one of the watershed groups working to clean up uh, the watersheds that go into Lake Erie. And um, do you have any advice to us on the ground, working on the ground, on how to improve or make an impact on our residents when I go to the store I see people still using plastic bags. I still see uh, litter all over the place. Our volunteers are pulling tons of litter out of the lake. Um, do you have any words of encouragement or words of advice on how we can get through to people? Thank you. I'd start with kids. Kids are the ones that make the biggest impact on their communities and their families, and they love to get in and clean up. And, and I just, I, you know, that it sounds so simple, but it's not that simple because they really do make a difference. And they started the original recycling was kids going after their parents as to why they were buying things in, in plastic. They've kind of forgotten that now because they need to be reminded. But those kinds of programs make a big difference. Involving them, involving the communities, as you've been saying, uh, is a way to start to have the kind of thinking that helps people understand the, the cumulative impact of individual behavior. Very difficult thing to get people's heads wrapped around, but you can do it, and that's what we need to do. There was as, there's as much oil deposited along the coastline United States every eight months from non-point source pollution as was released during the Exxon Valdez spill. That's from, you know, just driving around with a leaky oil pan or changing the oil in your car and driving it 
dumping it in the, in the lawn or something, thinking, well, I don't live on the water. But everybody lives in a watershed. We all live in a watershed. And even if you don't live right on a stream, you live next to a storm drain. And guess what? When you uh, put things in on the lawn or in the driveway, it washes off. And we started a program, pilot program, with the, when I was at EPA, with the meteorologists and got them to say that in a small group in the Washington and Virginia area when there was a heavy rain, because that's when people pay attention is when the, they're hearing about the weather, because that relates to them directly, to say, this is not a good time to fertilize your lawn or to spray for bugs because it's just going to wash away. And oh, by the way, you live in this watershed, and this is where the water is going to go, and this is the lake it's going to end up in, and this is where it's going to cause um, death of, of the environmental, mm -hmm. uh, have, a, have a negative environmental impact. So mm -hmm. there are lots of things that are, that are going on that can be done, too. Great. Thank you. Chanel, you had something? Yeah, there? I just want to add to that. I think, first of all, thanks for the work that you and your volunteers are doing to uh, protect Euclid Creek, um, to keep it clean. I think the other... I think the other part of that is as environmental organizations do our work, we have to make that our work, make sure that our work is culturally appropriated, um, appropriate and that it's um, meeting people where they are with their values and really understanding how people experience and use the lake. There's a significant amount of people in Cleveland that probably have never even been to, to the lake or they don't know where they get their water source from. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that actually happened earlier today uh, with my team is they had a meeting on East 105th with some of the black churches there who want to figure out how to get new parking lots. Like, because people are coming to church on Sunday, they got to have somewhere to park. What a great opportunity to talk to them about pervious pavement and stormwater runoff and how we can work with the sewer district and others to address an issue and a problem that they have in an environmental way. So you have to be really creative about meeting people where they are at when it comes to environmental issues. And I'm happy that Cleveland is doing some of that work. David Orr. I think that this is one of those issues that you, you have to operate at all levels. And so individual consumer behavior is great. We have to do that and so forth. The thing that drives that is either conscience, which is randomly distributed, or it's policy. And I hate to say this, but if you, if you do raise the tax, I mean, if people have to pay for what they do, prices that tell the truth about the effects we have in the world. So if you want to use plastic bag, fine, but here, here it's going to cost the environment a buck. You know, have a nice day. And, and begin to shift behavior. But we, we don't have leaded gasoline because we ban leaded gasoline. And so one way to deal with some things that we don't want is instead of the moral exhortation, now I'm the son of a preacher, so you know, that, that's in the blood, but it doesn't work always real effectively, but public policy does. And if people have to pay for this, we need a policy about materials. And that's part of the Green New Deal. Begin to think about the stuff that we make in the world and what happens to it. And so I, I one last thing, I taught, or when I was teaching, I taught a generation of students that grew up in an era of promiscuous chemistry. And if you did an uh, assay of their fatty tissues and bloodstream, on average, they had about 230 organochlorine compounds in their fatty tissues and bloodstream. Didn't belong there. And that was a case where you, you could randomly distribute chemicals around the world, including microplastics in Lake Erie, and never pay for it. So public policy is important in this conversation. So operate at both, both levels. Thank you, David. <laughs> Next question. Yeah, I want to go back to the climate change uh, discussion. Um, if we're to try to formulate a plan, um, can someone up in, on the uh, uh, stage um, indicate what is the current level 
of man-made CO2 in the atmosphere, and what would be the goal, the, the, the level of reduction that, that the world would need to make in order to satisfy um, the, the idea that, that you know, the, uh, about climate change. So sure. um, if, if, if CO2 is the culprit, shouldn't we have a plan to reduce the CO2 and know when we reach the goal? So does anyone know how much CO2 is in the atmosphere now and where we need to, to be to claim success? as far the as the, the amount of man-made CO2 in the atmosphere. Thank you for the question. Okay, th this is gonna take two hours, so <laughs> I'm doing this by PowerPoint. The last, the last a month ago, the uh, level of CO2 in the atmosphere was 414.73 uh, or some such fraction uh, parts per million. The baseline data against which that's measured is the pre-industrial level, which we have very good evidence, mice cores and other evidence, it didn't go above about 280 parts per million. Now, parts per million sounds like not much, but the difference is, if you think about this, uh, the Earth as compared to, a, let's say, a car parked in a Houston parking lot on a hot day in July, and you get the high-energy short-wave radiation coming in, but you roll up the windows. And so the long-wave, low-radiation energy can't get back out. So the interior of the car goes from 85 degrees to 95 to up to 140 or so forth. You're trapping heat, in other words. That's what the Earth is doing. So the uh, second thing is this. Um, uh, Bill McKibben's group, based on work from Jim Hansen, set the safe level at 350 parts per million. 350 compared to 414 or 415. And we're headed, there's no good reason, nobody in the room could offer a good reason why we'll stop short of 450. That's where policy comes in, in this radical change in how we're using energy. Now, there are two uh, wild cards in this. One is carbon stays in the atmosphere for a long time. The residence time of carbon in the atmosphere is measured in centuries. So that means you put it up there, the, the, uh, the, the carbon we release driving our, quote, Prius, from Oberlin to Cleveland this morning will stay in the atmosphere for a long time. So 10,000 years from now, there'll still be a trace element of carbon we released. And then, uh, so it doesn't come out quickly. And then there's this other little factor. CO2 is one of six or seven heat trapping gases that are important. The second most important is uh, CH4 called methane. And the problem is CO2 stays in the atmosphere for a long time. Methane is short. It'll, be, it'll wash out or convert into some other chemical within a space of 20 or 25 years. But in the meantime, it's 20 to 40 times more potent as a greenhouse gas at trapping heat. So if you add up all those other greenhouse gases, we're not at 415 or 414. We're really more, we're approaching 500 parts per million. Now, if you were in an airplane cockpit, uh, properly instrumented, there would be warning lights flashing all across that cockpit. Your altimeter would be buzzing and you know, all kind of warning and so forth, but we don't have the political equivalent of that kind of instrumentation. But if a national security advisor was worth their salt, they'd be running into the president's office and say, Mr. President, you know, you know, forget Iran. We've got a huge crisis. It's global. It's permanent. And you have a limited time that you may get a handle on it. But that, that's, uh, that's a long answer to a really good question. I'm sorry to get all the numbers, but this is where civic education and environmental education need to converge. 
as citizens, we need to know these numbers. We need to know a bit of the science behind them. And a lot hangs on our comprehension and whether we get these numbers or not. Thank you, David. Our next question, please. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Ms. Smith. Thank you very much for pointing out and highlighting the ways in which this challenge requires the democratization of power, including in our neighborhoods and beyond. And Dr. Orr for highlighting the way in which I heard you mention the habits of the heart. I wonder if you could say more about the transformation that's needed if we're going to take on climate change, if we're going to take on climate change, and the test for democracy that we're facing in the midst of this. I, and Governor Whitman, from each of you, I wonder if you can give examples and insights from where there have been successful efforts already to begin overcoming the kind of polarization, enough of the polarization that would allow us to find some bright spots and insights for moving forward. Thanks for that great question. Who wants to start? I'll, I'll start on that one. Go ahead, um, Governor. One of the first things that I find always works is you got to get the people of the divergent groups together and say, okay, can we agree there's a problem? And I believe here in the United States today, we can get people together to agree, yes, there's a problem. The climate is changing. Something's happening to our weather. I mean, you all have been like we have been, inundated, literally and figuratively, with more water than we need. I mean, farmers can't get into the fields. People are being evacuated. It's costing us a lot of money. This is a, a huge issue. People can see that. Once you get people to agree that that's the issue, then you can start to say, OK, what can we do to solve this issue? How can we work together to solve it? And it's amazing how you can, if you sit people down in a room or get a, people, a group of people together who have come at it from divergent opinions, you know, yes, it's occurring, no, it's not occurring, humans are doing it all, humans do, don't do anything, and you just get start low, start with focus on the problem. Is there a problem? Then you can start peeling it back and finding answers with which everyone can agree. And we have to start there, because if we don't start a conversation, as we think everybody's been saying up here, if we don't start a general conversation with the public at large, we're not going to get our elected leaders, who are the ones who can institute the policies that will force the change, we're not going to get them to respond the way they need to. I completely, I completely agree with that. And I think the whole democratizing the power has to start with me, myself, Chanel, understanding that I do not know everything when it comes to addressing climate change. But I can work with people like politicians, like the governor. I can work with David Orr, PhD. I can work with the community person in Huff and figure out how to bring all those people together to the table, like you said, to help solve those issues. I think the other thing you asked for an example, um, the work that I do as far as building parks and creating green space is one of those great examples where we've seen people come together on both sides of the aisle. Um, over the years, the Trust for Public Land has passed almost $70 billion, that's billion with a B, in state and local levies to support green space. That, so that means people have taxed themselves to create more green space in their community that contributes to reducing carbon and also creating more opportunities for people to get outdoors. So there are great examples within communities that we've seen across the country where we've been able to get it right, to get our stuff together and get it right for our neighbors. Um, the other thing I would say is um, Cleveland and other places, we love our neighborhoods, but we don't know our neighbors. And we have to start knowing our neighbors, you know, going out, talking to people, you know, Wade Oval is a great opportunity to do that, to get to know people from all different parts of Cleveland and to really come together as a community. So I would start in your own neighborhood, in your own community, and ask yourself, do you know your neighbor? 
Go ahead, David. Th this, this is a good, a really good question. And in the, in trying to think about whether we're up to creating a government of, by, and for the people that actually works relative to the big issues on the agenda, which are equity and, and all the way down to what Chanel just said about meeting your neighbor and so forth. Um, th there's a, there's a real, th this is the issue, and the phrase habits of heart that was part of the question comes from uh, Alexis de Tocqueville, a Frenchman who came to America in the 1830s and wrote this classic book, Democracy in America. Probably the best thing ever written on democracy. Unfortunately, it's about that thick. Uh, but it's good reading. And I think what, what needs to happen is that we need to not reconstitute democracy back to some previous set point. Uh, this isn't make democracy great again. This is about taking democracy to the next level. And why does democracy stop at the corporate door, at the schoolhouse door, at the synagogue or church door? Why don't we infuse democracy? And this was the Tocqueville's point. And to begin to think about reinventing a democracy that works for all people well, that's transparent, fair, decent, and also has foresight. A democracy that's scientifically literate. And I would underscore what Chanel just said. I think this does really begin with us talking to each other at the neighborhood level, and it builds up from there. This is where we learn the habits of heart that say we're engaged, your life is important to my life, and so forth, and begin to uh, build on that, that fundamental neighborliness that I think is uh, in a lot of people's hearts. It just needs a chance to come out. You know, I, and I would I'd just add, take off my moderator hat for a second, that there are two other ways that where people are coming together. This is an example, this is what the City Club does, generally, uh, day in, day out. But also next weekend is co the Common Ground Initiative that's started by the Cleveland Foundation, where neighbors are inviting other neighbors to come and share a meal and talk about what's most important to them. Um, and there's more information on Cleveland Foundation's website. And uh, it, if you're looking for something to do next weekend, that's time well spent, to be sure. Our next question, please. My name is Harper Smith, and my question is, um, how can kids help clean up the lake and um, keep them clean, like Thank the Great Lakes? Thank you so much. Thank you. I just want to hang out with Harper now. You want to hang out with Harper? Yeah, I just wanna, and you have a great last name, Harper. Smith is a great <laughs> last name. Um, I think there's a wonderful opportunity for you to volunteer in your neighborhood, in your community. Um, I know the Alliance for the Great Lakes does great work in the community, getting people out to the lake. The one thing that I would say is you, you, know, you have your friends that you hang out with at school or you hang out with this summer. You guys can just get together and decide to go, you want to go clean up the lake um, and work, with, and work as, with your community to do that. Um, one of my first things that I did as a kid was um, advocate for uh, our school, our school levy to be taxed. I love taxes. Uh, but I, I advocate for our school levy to be taxed. But you have the power. You just used your voice in this room with all these people, with the mayor sitting here, and you made your voice heard. And that's one of the first things that you can do as a citizen in this neighborhood, in this community. Christine Todd Whitman is a former administrator of the Environmental Protection Agency and the 50th governor of New Jersey. She's joined on stage by Chanel Smith, state director for the Trust for Public Land, and Dr. David Orr, professor emeritus of environmental studies and politics at Oberlin College. We are finishing up here our State of the Great Lakes, our 2019 State of the Great Lakes at the Huntington Convention Center. And we'd like to give special thanks to our sponsors today whose generous support made this free community forum possible. This is part of our Igniting the Future series sponsored by the Cleveland Foundation and the George Gunn Foundation. 
It's also part of our Sustainable NEO series sponsored by Bank of America and the Northeast Ohio Regional Sewer District with additional support from the Great Lakes Brewing Company and a good friend of the City Club, Ensign Cowell. We're delighted to have representatives from all of our sponsors with us today. Thank you so much for your support of City Club programming. Additionally, our forum today is the annual Paul A. and Sonia F. Unger International Forum on Cleveland in the World, made possible by a generous endowment gift from the Unger family. We're grateful for their legacy gift to the City Club. And that brings us to the end of our program today. Thank you, Dr. Orr, Ms. Smith, Governor Whitman, and thank you, members and friends of the City Club of Cleveland. There's a lot of activity this weekend around this, this historic moment. Please get out and enjoy it, and thank you for participating today. Our forum is adjourned. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund, with additional funding from Robert Conrad. Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.